All right, guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Matthew. Now, the last time we were here, we were in Matthew chapter three, where we dealt with basically the introduction of John the Baptist. And in talking about John the Baptist, we dealt with his ministry, which simply was, according to Isaiah, prepare a people for the coming Messiah. And so therefore, John had a message of repentance repentance of wickedness and evil and in preparation for the people that once John, this was his job. Once John pointed out the Messiah, the people were to follow the Messiah. And so this was his ministry and therefore he baptized and we dealt with the meaning of baptism basically is there is a message that one is proclaiming John repent. Why? kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. The Messiah is near. And therefore, John would point out this Messiah. And so therefore, all who would be baptized by John are simply accepting his message, following his message, and therefore are looking forward to the coming Messiah that John would point out who was near at hand. And then we also saw in chapter three where there were certain Pharisees that were Pharisees and Sadducees. That is a delegation of, of people who come from the Sanhedrin. We're not going to deal with all of that information. Go back and look at chapter three. But nevertheless, they were out looking, observing. That was the first part of their ministry. And then questioning John. But John did not look upon those religious leaders in a favorable manner. Instead, he called them a brood of vipers. And John simply stated to them that they should not depend on their um, descendancy from Abraham as an automatic entrance into the kingdom of God, but rather should take heed to the message that he is giving to them. Repent and bear fruit of repentance and of course, follow after the Messiah once John points him out. And John warned them of judgment already near for these men as well as the people of the Jews. In other words, how they will respond to the Messiah once John points him out. Okay. So then he continued on in dealing with the baptism of Jesus. And uh, quite naturally, as Jesus came to be baptized by John, John was uncomfortable by this. But nevertheless, Jesus convinced him that it was the right thing to do in order that the Messiah should be associated with his people. And in his association with his people, the idea bearing the sins of his people. And so therefore, John relented and he baptized Jesus. And then we had the, tri the Trinity, the triune God at the scene of Jesus's own baptism. That is God, the, the heavens open and God, the father spoke, the spirit descended in the form of a dove and remained upon him. And there the son of God himself was being baptized. This is the Trinity of God on the scene. Okay. All right. So now we are in chapter four, when we are going to deal with the temptations of Jesus. I'm kind of mm, in a way to deal with this because when we deal with the temptations of Jesus, okay, notably 
in each and every one of those temptations that Satan will bring to Jesus, in essence, it is a temptation to sin. So then the question becomes, if Jesus is God, he cannot sin. He cannot sin. So therefore, it would be a fruitless endeavor to try to tempt him to sin. You see what I'm saying? So as God, why try to get him to sin when it is impossible for God to sin? So, okay, let's just deal with him. Here is where we have to understand the dual natures of Jesus, the two natures of Jesus. Jesus is both son of man. That is, he is a human being, 100% human being. And Jesus is also son of God, which is God. Son of God simply is a title for the second person of the divine Trinity. Jesus is also God. What we have to understand, what you have to understand is this, and this is a common misconception that Jesus basically doing his earthly ministry, those basically three, three and a half years that he walked on earth, that Jesus walked on earth as the son of God. But this is incorrect, even though he is the son of God. And he was even at that time that he walked on the earth for those three and a half years, the son of God, he did not live he did not exercise himself as the son of God. That literally means as God himself or as scripture would call him in Revelation, God Almighty. What Jesus did can be understood by Paul and Paul in Philippians chapter two in urging the Philippians to stop being proudful and to be humble and follow the example of Jesus. Paul said concerning Jesus how he laid aside his divine nature. He laid aside, I'm sorry, that's the problem. Wait, 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 improper. Let me say this again. He laid aside his divine prerogatives. Now that's what I need to say, okay? So get that part right. Essence, I, that was altogether wrong, but prerogatives. So let me tell you, okay, this is kenao. This is what Paul was talking about. That's the Greek, Greek word kenao. To, that is a voluntary laying aside. What Paul said was this, Jesus, when he became flesh, even though he was God, even in the very image of God, having all of the divine powers, all, and this is what we mean when we say the divine prerogatives, even having all of the divine prerogatives, power, of God, he voluntarily, notice what I'm saying, voluntarily, they were not stripped from him, he voluntarily laid them aside temporarily as he walked the earth, okay? And so in this voluntarily laying aside of the divine prerogatives, this is how we must understand. And this is how scripture teaches us to understand how Jesus normally operated while on earth. All right. So that's number one, but also too, as Messiah, as the Messiah, he was also given powers. And remember now, when we speak of Messiah, when we, okay, Messiah is more so 
on the human nature of Jesus. Okay. It more so relates to the human nature. That is the one who should come, the one who should come fulfill uh, being a human being, fulfill the prophecies of the prophets of the old Testament, that one, the Messiah, the Christ. Okay. Also given powers, or as Peter would say in the book of Acts, anointed of God and being given powers by the Holy Ghost. You see it now? So the Messiah operates with a power given of God. That's another case. Then the third case concerning Kenao. That is when we're talking about the prerogatives of Jesus as God, his divine nature. All right. From time to time in the scripture, you will see Jesus, though that divine prerogative. And whenever Jesus would act, now listen to me closely. Whenever Jesus would act in a divine sense, that is, he would act as God. That is to know the minds of all men on the planet. And Jesus said concerning Nathaniel. Now here is a Jew who is truly a Jew. He said, when did you know me? He said, I saw you when you were sitting under that tree. That's a divine, that's an operation of the divine. And you will see that all throughout John, but we can't talk about John. I think I do a special teaching in the book of John, but anyway, so dealing with divine prerogatives time from time to time, Jesus would do certain things that only God can do. That is as a normative, he operated according to the Messiah, the Holy ghost giving him power as a man. But there were times when Jesus did not operate as a man filled with the Holy spirit as the Messiah, but he would even go beyond that and then operate as the son of God. That means he was using divine power. And this will explain, and you'll see this later on as we work through the gospels, this will explain why at times Jesus would be surprised. Say for instance, the centurion, I'm no longer worth, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. And Jesus would be, he would be amused by this and say, truly, I have not seen uh, no kind of faith like this in Israel. Why is Jesus amused if he knows everything? Because the normative, how Jesus would normally operate would be simply as the man, the Messiah, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the things that the Messiah would do. And he would not, uh, it's not so much as violate the divine prerogatives, but allow me to say it in this way, dip into his divine powers, act according to his divine nature as God who knows all things, who has all power. Okay. So this is what we need to see. As we begin to deal with, we need to understand this in the ministry of Jesus as a whole. And it helps us to understand the temptations of Jesus and other things concerning Jesus that most importantly, guys, remember, Jesus did not walk around as basically the son of God. Indeed, he was the son of God by essence, by nature, but he did not operate as the son of God, meaning to do all things, to have all, no, 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 no. Sometimes you can surprise him. Some things 
He did not know there would be a self-limiting. Let me give you a final example. When Jesus talks about the return, his own return, he said that the angels did not know, no man would know, not even the son, him, Jesus himself did not know. So notice you see a limiting of his knowledge. That is, he is operating in the human sense, that messianic sense, which is limited. He is not operating as God who knows all things. As he was on the earth, he limited his power. He did not operate as God who can do all things, but basically as Messiah. But from time to time, he would dip, allow me to say it, into those divine powers. He would, uh, he would, okay, don't worry about the, the, the divine prerogative that was limited. I am operating as God. I'm doing the things only that God can do. And he would do those things only as God to prove that not only is he son of man, Messiah, but he is also God in the flesh the dual nature of God. And you will see that idea of Jesus laying aside that that is these principles and these specific times when Jesus would dip into his divine power to show that he is God. You will see that taught in the gospel of John for that is the very nature of John's gospel. When John indicates his miracles, when John points out the specific miracles of Jesus, John points those seven miracles out simply to say, only God can do this. And that's why John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the word, the words were with God and the word was God. And what? The word became flesh. God became flesh. And then you get to the end of John's gospel. He's got, that's the prologue one, one, one through 18. And then you get to the end of God's gospel, the appendage. When John begins to say, when you see the, um, uh, issue of Thomas and what does Thomas say when he sees Jesus appearance after his resurrection, Lord of me, my Lord and God of me, my God. And so John says, what these things have I written to let you know that this Jesus is the son of God. And what many things Jesus did that I could have written and they would have, they would have, they would have filled all the books of the world, but I have selected chosen miracles to write about in my gospel that you may know that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is God. So John points out his gospel, the very nature reason for John bringing his gospel is to let us know that Jesus is God. Okay, so that's what he was emphasizing, that don't make no misunderstanding, although he is Messiah, son of man in the flesh who limited himself, but he only limited himself voluntarily. Indeed, he is God and he will do things to prove it. Okay, so that helps us to understand how Jesus can be tempted because in his temptations, he is not tempted as God who is unable to sin. He is tempted as a man, the Messiah, who indeed 
can sin appealing to one of the sides of his nature. What side of Jesus nature? His humanity. And in that humanity of Messiah, he can sin as a man likened unto us. Notice as the writer of Hebrews would say later on how Jesus himself was tempted like we are. That means tempted in all three categories. And we'll talk about that. And so therefore at being tempted and then even how God allowed Jesus to suffer, he taught him obedience by the things that he suffered. Why does God need to be taught obedience as a man? So never forget there are dual sides to Jesus nature born of Mary, a man sent from God, God himself, both man and God. And that's why we commonly refer to him as the God man. Okay. hundred percent man, hundred percent God at all times. All right. With that, hopefully extended point, we can see now we're ready to get into the temptations of Jesus. So I, I hope that was not, I know it wasn't a waste of time and I know it will bless you. So go back and look at what I just said again. It helps you to understand what was going on in Jesus' life when he walked those three and a half years. So without any further ado, let's just simply get into Matthew chapter four. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Okay, so let's stop there because there is a lot of unpacking to do. And I'm afraid that if we would do all of chapter four in one video, it's going to be long. So I think I'm going to try to do it anyhow. So bear with me. So now we are immediately after Jesus's baptism. And remember, one of the last things, one of the things that we saw when Jesus raised out of the water in his baptism was the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus. And so now this Holy Spirit that is upon Jesus is now leading Jesus, causing Jesus to go into the wilderness. So therefore, one of the first things that you need to see is this temptation of Jesus is the will of God. God had predetermined that Jesus once filled with the Holy Spirit should go into this deserted place for the purpose of temptation. So God himself is involved in the fasting of 40 days and 40 nights, which we will see a debilitation notice fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And in that he had no water, no food, he had nothing to eat, nothing to drink. Imagine what that would do to the body, the weakness that it brings upon the body. So here is the re relating to the humanity of Jesus. He is in a very weakened, debilitated state. So imagine, and, and, and in this state, it's bringing the idea to weaken him, weaken him even as we ourselves would be weakened. Okay. But still, still, let me deal with verse number one. So he is led according to the will of God into a deserted place for the purpose of 
to be tempted by Satan, to be tempted by the devil. God is leading Jesus into a place by himself so that Satan could come and assault Jesus in his most weakened state, tempt him to tempt him whether or not he should sin against God, to tempt him whether or not he should fall. Okay, so now that's the idea to see if Jesus can withstand. He is going to learn obedience through temptation. Learn obedience through the things that he suffered. He will set for us an example of this thing, how that we should withstand evil, sin, and Satan in the same way that he did as well. He sets an example for all of his children. Okay. Verse number one. Now in verse number two, he says, he talks about that fasting that lasted for a prolonged period of 40 days and 40 nights. And I've already talked about the debilitated state that Jesus would be in physically. And notice, consider this prone, prone to temptation, weakened toward temptation. If there is a good time to get him, get him now. You got that? And so that's why I said, and he became hungry. Notice to be, okay. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? It lets you know he is not operating as the son of God. Cause guess what? As God, he don't need food. He doesn't have, he doesn't have to ever become hungry. So, but as a man, can you imagine how hungry he is? So that debilitating state. And so best time to give a frontal assault, which Satan would do. Now, let me also tell you about this. The 40 days and the 40 nights. These, this has a great symbolism to Israel because remember, Israel was in the wilderness. When God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, during that time that they were in the wilderness, notice the same thing Jesus is brought in the wilderness in the same way. What the children of Israel were in the wilderness and the children of Israel wandered. And we know it mean, doesn't mean not knowing where they were going because they were always led by God. But the point is they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And in the same semblance as they were in the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. The idea is Jesus is experiencing the wanderings, the journeyings of Israel in a concentrated sense. So as the children of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years, and in the 40 years, they suffered temptation. But here's the key. They suffered those temptations as we see in the book of Exodus and in the book of Numbers. And in their suffering those temptations for 40 years, they failed. They failed their temptations miserably. But instead, as Jesus is in the wilderness and he did not fail those temptations and the same temptation that is, the same class, the same categories of temptation, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and uh, pride. 
in the same way in which they were tempted in the wilderness. Jesus is also tempted in the same way, but in contrast where they failed their temptations, Jesus succeeds in his temptation and as what Hosea once again, Israel is called the son of God. Remember Hosea 11 and one out of Israel. I'm sorry, out of Egypt. I call my son Israel, Jesus, the son of God. He himself where Jesus Israel is the son of God failed the test. Jesus, the true son of God passes the test. So all of these parallels are to be seen. You got it. All of them where Israel failed their test in the 40 days and nights uh, from sorry, 40 years, Jesus passes his test and where Jesus suffers all of these temptations for his people as an example unto all his people, whether Jews or Gentiles. So that is what is being presented to us in these temptations of Jesus by the devil himself. All right. Now let's go to verse number three. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he, but he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So now the first temptation that Matthew gives to us. And remember now, Matthew is not concerned with giving the temptation to Jesus, uh, the temptations of Jesus in the actual order that they had happened. If we want to find out the order of the temptations that the devil presented to Jesus, we have to go to Luke. Okay. And Luke gives us that order, but Matthew gives us a particular order. He is ordering them so that the final ordering will be given concerning the, the kingdoms of God, because Jesus is the Messiah. He will once rule over all the kingdoms and notice what is the idea of the gospel of Matthew, Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David, the Messiah, the kingdom. He is the messianic king who shall rule over the world. Okay. But anyway, we're not going to get into all of those things. So, but the point that I'm simply trying to tell you is as Matthew ordered the temptations of Jesus, he ordered them with respect to the concept of the messianic kingdom. Also too, as these uh, the writers, because, you know, Mark didn't talk about, I don't think Mark talks about the temptation of Jesus, only Matthew and Luke and John didn't talk about the temptations of Jesus either. But even though they mentioned these temptations, what you have to understand is these are not the only temptations, but these are the temptations that they are bringing forth. They are giving us to see to show us how Jesus was tempted in all three points, categories, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, just like we also are tempted and Jesus being tempted as a man, as a man succeeded. He did not yield. He did not sin when tempted by Satan. So we remember that. Okay. So where am I? This first temptation, so he comes to tempt him. So the devil comes to tempt him in a weakened state. Why? 
fasted 40 days, 40 nights. He was hungry. If you are the son of God, command these stones to be turned to bread. Now, the first thing that I want to say is this. I'm going to look at the word if, which is the Greek word here, use a, E-I, a. The word a means if, but also in the context it could be understood that Satan is not asking Jesus to simply uh, prove that he is the son of God because it is unknown. You got it? Okay, notice once again, Satan is not simply coming to Jesus saying, prove you're the son of God because I don't know that you're the son of God. So by you doing this, you're going to prove to me that you're the son of God. <laughs> That's ridiculous within himself. Satan already knew who Jesus was. Remember, it is Jesus who made Satan himself. He didn't make him as Jesus, but he made him as the son of God. So Satan can see the son of God in Jesus. So the idea is the word a should better be understood as since you are the son of God, that is since you are God's son, then prove it by doing these things. You got it? So basically, not so much as if, that is a good translation, but also the idea being since you are the son of God. But what? What is he tempting him to do? Turn the stones into bread. And Jesus responds, what? According to the scriptures. So Jesus answered him as that which is written and all of these things, when Jesus would quote him, the scripture comes from the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. All right. But we now get into all of those issues. But Jesus answers him from the law of Moses and says what it is written. Deuteronomy chapter eight, man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So now let's look at what's going on in the temptation. Remember, God, by the spirit of God, had driven, driven Jesus into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted by Satan. God, by the spirit of God, had commanded that Jesus not eat food 40 days and 40 nights. So since it is the will of God that Jesus not eat food while in this or enduring this desert experience. Listen to me again. Since it is the will of God leading him where he led him, having him to fast during this experience. Therefore, if Jesus was to make bread supernaturally, he is the son of God. If Jesus was to dip into his power and to make these stones into bread, he would be violating the will of the father. He would be sinning against the will of the father. Why did not God bring him into the wilderness and allow him to go through this period of hunger? So therefore for Jesus to make, so what you're going to do is make the bread anyway. God doesn't want you to eat, but you're going to feed yourself anyway. So you are now sinning against God. It is a temptation to violate, to sin against the will of God. The very purpose for which God had brought him into the wilderness, a place where there was no food. You got it. And don't dip into your powers, 
son of God. Dip into your powers, son of God. Dip into your power, son of God. And make bread for yourself. Okay? And that's why Jesus said he began to quote what happened in as Deuteronomy was reflecting, I believe it was in Exodus chapter 17 when they had no bread and God provided manna for them. Okay. And the whole idea was, and this is where Moses was saying in Deuteronomy eight, he says, you shall recall the way, all the way in which the Lord brought you. And let me just paraphrase it. You will, you shall bring to mind, remember and consider that when God was bringing you out of Egypt and the temptations that he allowed you to suffer. What temptations he allowed you to go through. It was God's will that you have times when you did not have bread. It was God's will that you should have time when you did not have water to drink. Recall these things. It was God's will. Learn the lesson of what God was telling you in these testings, in these proving of yourself. What? That man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Man does not live by the substance of food. Man lives by his obedience to God, his waiting on God, his knowing that God will provide all your needs through his riches and glory. Learn that it is God and his word alone. And Moses said, understand that. And so Jesus simply quoted to Satan, the scripture, you are telling me make bread for myself and feed myself and violate the will of God. But I'm telling you, according to the word of God, it is written. Don't do this thing. Do what God says. God brought me out here God led me out here. God wanted me to be hungry. And when I'm going to eat is when God provides the food and just wait till we get to the end of the chapter. I notice again, I tell you now, I am going to eat when God provides my food and not until then, but until now, up until that time comes, I'm going to abide by God's will. I'm going to not live by making food for myself. I'm going to live on God's word, abide by his will. All right. So now let's move to the second temptation as Matthew recorded it. Five. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, indeed, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. <laughs> okay, so now let's look at this second one. Here we find uh, when Satan uh, he's going to get sleek. So let me just tell you what's going on. He took him to, into the holy city. Now, some say that this was in a vision. Okay. That is in some sort of visionary aspect, Satan transported Jesus 
to the holy city. Because remember, Jesus was in Galilee. Galilee. Holy city is in Jerusalem. Okay. And the temple is in Jerusalem. Some say this was in a visionary form. I don't accept that. It's possible it was a vision, but that's not what I accept. If you look at the scripture and accept, and accept the scripture simply on face value, and that's what the literary nature of scripture is teaching us here. It's not saying that this should be a vision. It's not saying he had a vision or something. It says the devil took him into the holy city. I'll say again, the devil took him into the holy city. That is what happened. Jesus was in the wilderness and for a moment in time, Satan literally transported Jesus to Jerusalem. What we see is the vulgarity in Satan's operation of power. Oh, I like, I, <laughs> I love it. Saints. I love it. What you see, if you, this is the, this is the way I say stuff like that. Satan's showing out. He's showing out to take Jesus and take him, transport him. Let's look at, think about Star Trek <laughs> all the way to the Holy city. He's showing out. This is a gross operation of his power. Satan doesn't normally do stuff like this, but what you have to remember is this is the son of God who is present on earth. This is the son of God present on earth. Jesus will not always have a physical bodily present on earth. And Satan knew this. So Satan is going to tempt Jesus. He's going to use his power in a great way. Why? Because once Jesus ascends into heaven, he can't do it. You can't tempt him like that no more. So in other words, throw all you got at him. And this is what's going on. So he takes him to the temple and notice, okay, to the pinnacle of a temple, to a high place on the temple. And he says unto him, throw yourself down. Now it's still a couple of things we got, but we'll talk about this. Throw yourself down. And so he says unto him, since you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And then he quotes, for it is written. So let me stop there. Satan is now mimicking Jesus in a way. Remember when he told Jesus to turn the stones to bread, he, Jesus quoted the scripture for it is written. So Satan says, fine, since you want to quote the scriptures, I'll quote them too. So Satan quotes Psalm 91 for it is written that God gives his angels charge. In other words, God will send his angels to protect you in such a way that even if you, the Messiah and notice Satan rightly translate this concerning the Messiah, that is nothing can happen to the Messiah outside of the will of God. And we even understand it outside of the time appointed. Notice what I just said now outside the time appointed. Now I'm doing a little digression to help you. There is a time. In other words, you will see times in Jesus's ministry when they want to seek to lay hands on him. And Jesus like magically, supernaturally just walks through the crowd or whatever. And they can't do anything. They can't hurt him or whatever. They cannot hurt Jesus until the time come. That's why Jesus will say, all right, the time has come. And when he says the time has come, he means for his crucifixion. Okay. So up until that time of Jesus' crucifixion, during those three, three and a half years of his ministry, up until the time of crucif crucifixion, 
No man could hurt Jesus no matter what he tried to do. You got it? Or anyway, so back to this text once again. So he is saying, quoting Satan, is quoting Psalm 91, saying that God gives his angels care concerning you. So nothing can ever happen to you. All right. And so Jesus, therefore, quotes unto him in retaliation. That's why it says on the on the other hand or in contrast, scripture never con contradicts itself. But also or indeed what you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And I believe this is Deuteronomy chapter six. Jesus quotes unto him. And this is the event. And I and I and I find myself needing to give you guys the event to understand what Jesus was saying when he made a single scriptural quote. You have to understand the context of what is going on when Jesus made the quote. So when he says you shall not put the Lord your God to the test brings us all the way back to the issue of Israel not having water. And when they did not have water, they complained against God. And that's when God told Moses, I believe it was speaking to the rock. But nevertheless, God provided water from a rock and it gave water. And he says, call the name of that place Masa. And Masa means testing where notice where and this was saying where where the people of Israel, the children of Israel put God to the test saying what is the Lord among us or not? And boy, that makes every time I quote that, that makes me smoking hot. And you have to understand what they were saying. This is what they were saying. All right, God, we out here and we, we, we ain't got no water. And, and he, you, you done brought us out here and all of this kind of mess. Now, if, if, if you're supposed to be God and all of that, you need to be provided and you need to be giving us some water. So if, you, if you're supposed to be God, where the water at? Where the water at? Are you God? And if you God, is God here or not? Because if you God, you need to get on your job and provide water. Woo! And who you think you are? God provides water when, how he will, according to his power. He don't provide water. God don't jump when you tell him to jump. And this made God hot. And so Jesus is bringing about that issue saying, what? You don't put God to the test. You don't tell God what to do. If God tells you that he is going to do something, Psalm 91, if God tells that he would, that he would take care of me, he won't let me get hurt. It's not for me to prove, tell, to, to make God prove himself. That is, it's not my job to put God to the test. It ain't my job to jump from the temple and say, all right, God, do what you said you're going to do. That's not my job. My job is simply to believe God's word. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, don't put God to the test. And that's something for us to remember. When God gives you a promise, it's not for you to say, God, where you at? It's your job simply to believe that God will do what he says he will do. Never, ever put God to the test. I say, for, let me, let me give you an example. 
Oh my God. It, it's, and, and, and I'm not giving you guys all of the details. This is part of the details because it's more of a teaching than simply this. So just let me give you partial teaching as an example. You have some people in the Appalachians, certain parts of, uh, I believe it's Tennessee, who have this belief system to call themselves Christian and they are called snake handlers, snake handlers. You guys have probably heard of or seen video and they're walking around in church in a part of their worship. One of some of the members, it starts with the leader doing it. And then some of the members will follow him and sing, uh, singing and dancing, shouting, talking about, I got the Holy Ghost and they'll take a snake. They got a snake in the congregation and they'll take a snake and walk around with the snake singing and dancing. They call themselves being filled with the Holy Spirit, saying that if you have the Holy Spirit of God, that you won't be bitten by the snake because Mark 16 says they shall take up serpents. And, and that's the whole point of it. I'm not going to even get into the whole issue of that part of Mark 16 is not even in the gospel. It was later added. I ain't going to deal with that. That's another teaching of itself. But the whole point of it, what they are doing is this by them taking up the serpent and dancing. What they're doing is even if Mark, that part of the gospel is true, they are putting God to the test. If God said that he would protect you from venomous snakes, don't put him to the test by going finding one and then dancing with it saying, okay, snake, bite me, bite me. He ain't going to bite me because God don't put God to the test and other things. But I just want to bring that stupid thing that is done by them in putting God to the test. All right. So let's move on because I know this is going to be long. Uh, where did I stop? Uh, so we ate verse number eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. And she, oh, I'm sorry. Let me go back before I finish this too. How did this reflect? Okay, but the, going back to the turning of the stones to bread. This is clearly a lust to lust of the flesh. Remember, the three categories of sin John talked about. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. The turning the stones to bread is lust of the flesh. Lust of the flesh simply means to do something to satisfy the flesh. If Jesus turned stone, stones to bread he, and eat it, he would satisfy his flesh. Okay, now the jumping off the wall to get the angels to catch him. All right, notice of the temple. It was believed, I believe it's in Malachi 3, and they, mis they misinterpreted always Malachi 3, I believe it is, that the Messiah could would come and jump off the the, the high point of the um, of the temple and the Jewish people would see him. And this is the idea of Satan and Jewish people seeing him come up to and they believe in this such a one as the Messiah. So Satan is, t is tempting Jesus to do that because it is a thing about a desire, lust of the eyes. And what does it mean by the lust of the eyes? In other words, by Jesus, um, this would be an appeal to the Jewish people, an appeal to the Jewish people to accept Jesus as the Messiah. And also too, what you have to understand too, that this is what is beginning to develop in those temptations. You got to understand it in doing this in the misconception of Malachi three, I believe it is of Jesus jumping from the temple, people seeing him. Oh my God, the Messiah, Messiah. This is, this is not the way 
This is not the way to the messiahship that God has ordained. So this becomes the beginning of things in which God himself had determined for Jesus to be and fulfill, to be and fulfill the works of the Messiah. In finality, by showing himself, proving himself to Israel, and ultimately by dying on the cross. Notice what I just said, saints. Showing himself, proving himself to Israel, and you'll see this proving himself in the following, proving himself by signs and wonders. Showing and proving, ultimately, Isaiah 52, 53, dying on the cross, Psalm 22. Okay, so in all of these things, he, this was God's way. This was God's mission for the Messiah, coming to the world and ultimately down the cross. What Satan was offering to Jesus, you see that this is the beginning, he's laying the ground for it, is a shortcut to the Messiahship, a shortcut. Notice, Jesus is not even performing any signs and even wonders at all, but notice, by jumping off the, off the temple and all of this stuff, people saying he's a Messiah, it's a shortcut. God did not will for Jesus to become the Messiah in this manner. So therefore, it will become lust of the eyes. It will fulfill the desire of the eyes in becoming the Messiah this way. And it would be a shortcut to how God himself want Jesus to be the Messiah. Therefore, it would be sin. Why is it sin? If it's a shortcut to what God wants, it's not the will of God. And anything that is against the will of God would be sin. Satan is once again tempting Jesus to sin by jumping off the temple. Okay. Now let's go to verse uh, to the third temptation of Jesus. Uh, verse number eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him the all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. So now let's talk about this. So now in the third temptation of Satan, he takes him to a very high mountain. And notice again now, there is nothing that says this is vision. I hold literal interpretation of the scripture. Satan is showing out, just like I told you and all this other stuff, okay? To a very high mountain. And there he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now note this was a notice. Very high mountain. Now the kingdoms of the world and their glory being shown unto him. He's at one mountain showing him the kingdoms. So this he is doing clearly in a visionary form. Why? Because he is at a specific mountain high and Satan begins to show him all the world, all the kingdoms of the world. You, can you imagine? Okay. Remember guys, all means all of it. He's showing him all the whole wide doggone world, all of them, all of them. 
And then he showed him these kingdoms and their glory. And he says to him, now let's look at this verse number nine, because we got some unpacking to do. All these things I will give to you. All these things I will give to you. Now, when Satan made that statement, he talked about the kingdoms of the world, all the world and its powers. Notice when Jesus responded to him, he did not call Satan a liar. If Satan was lying, Jesus would have told him he was a liar. And cause even later on, he calls him a liar. He calls him the father of lies. But in this scenario, Satan is not lying at all. Why? Because notice what the scripture says about Satan. He is the God of this world. He is the ruler of this world. He is the one who has the powers over this world that Jesus talked about in Paul calling him the majesty and prince and ruler of the world. This is talked about in Jesus, I believe in John 12 and it's a beautiful thing. Notice as Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, he says, now the ruler of this world is cast down. Why? If I, if I be lifted up, I'll draw men unto me. So notice who is the ruler of the world? Satan. All I'm trying to say to you is when Satan made the offer to Jesus to give him the powers, the kingdoms of the world, it was in his authority to give them. He didn't give, he wasn't bluffing. He could have literally at that time given Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. All right. And even later on, we're going to find out that there is one who will come, a uh, one who will come, a seed of Satan's own being born of a woman. And Satan will offer him all the kingdoms of the world and he will agree and Satan will give him power. And this one will exercise power over the 10 kingdoms who will be the 10 kings in the 10 kingdoms of the world. And Satan will give him power over all the world, the antichrist. But we ain't going into that. <laughs> Back to Matthew. But again, he is offering Jesus this power and, and only on only if only if Jesus right then and there should fall down before Satan and worship Satan as God. What is he doing? First off again. Now here it is in your face. He is directly offering Jesus a shortcut to the messiahship. Why? He is offering him the kingdoms of the world. Notice the messiahship is offered to Jesus. Oh, wait a minute. The kingdoms of the world will one day be given to the messiah. All the Old Testament prophets would say about things about these things that the messiah will rule over all the world. And even then, notice when Jesus rose from the dead. Notice, no, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. Notice when Jesus, after, after he rose from the dead, he said what? All power is delegated, is given unto me. 
all power. And then at the time, and we're going to get it, we're not going to even deal with revelation. He shall reign over the kingdoms of the world. That means in context, only after Jesus dies and pays the price that he will be given the kingdoms of the world. Satan is offering Jesus a shortcut to be Messiah. And Jesus rejects this shortcut. Now, let me tell you why, and then I'll deal with the rest of the verse. Why? If Jesus, if Jesus accepted Satan's offer, notice he would never go to the cross. If Jesus never goes to the cross, he never dies for the sin of his people. That means the sin of all from the time of Adam to the time of the last human being, their sin, all sin remains because the purpose of the cross for his people is to remove all of their sins. So therefore, if Jesus did not go to the cross, if he accepted Satan's messiahship, all the sins of you and me still remain. And guess what that would mean? Every single human being to hell you going. Why? Unless the Messiah should remove your sins, your sins, all sins remain. And so therefore Satan in his craftiness, as we saw in the garden of Eden, Satan was condemning all humanity to hell. And that's number one. Number two, only notice this, Jesus says, by Jesus going to the cross is the ruler of this world cast down. Jesus gains dominion over Satan through the cross. Jesus has total victory over Satan by what? By virtue of the cross. But here, Satan is offering him these things before the cross. So if Jesus does not go to the cross, he does not gain ultimately victory over Satan by the cross. And guess what Satan is allowed to do? Remain the ruler of this world. What did Jesus say? Now is the ruler of this world cast down. Why? By virtue of me going to the cross. So Jesus has dominion cast down Satan by virtue, by virtue of his crucifixion. If he doesn't do that, Satan will, my God, notice what the end of scripture teaches that one day Satan himself will be cast into the lake of fire. But if Jesus worships Satan here, Satan rules and reigns over this earth forever and ever and ever. He will never be cast into hell and the scriptures would never be fulfilled. Second thing, then third thing, let me say about this. When Jesus went to the cross, notice the book of Hebrews teaches us that in defeating Satan on the cross, he gained the keys to death and Hades. That is Jesus gained the keys to the underworld. And let me make this part short because we are going ways too long, but in gaining the keys to the underworld, this is what you need to understand. All of the righteous dead, 
before Jesus died, before Jesus died and went to the cross, all of the righteous dead, say for instance, Adam, because I believe Adam, that's every indication Adam was saved. Abraham, Isaac saved, Jacob saved, all of the prophets of God saved, King David saved, all these saved people of the Old Testament age. When they died, they went into a place called Hades, also in New Testament times called paradise. Remember when Jesus gave the parable uh, in Luke chapter 16, and it was a parable of reality. It was not a parable saying this is not, this is not real, but this is a parable of reality because parables, reality in Jewish literature, parables of reality always had names to it. And notice there was a rich man. I'm sorry. There was a poor man with the source was given a name. Lazarus. The reason why the rich man was named was simply because the parable was trying to say that those whom people think so much, God don't think nothing about. The people love rich folk. So the rich, so the rich folk, you, you really think they'll be given a name, but because the rich man was given a name, it was simply God's way of saying, huh, he don't mean nothing to me, but Lazarus who people would think don't mean nothing, poor, miserable, but yet he was a righteous man. People didn't think mean so people wouldn't even think to call Lazarus name. Jesus thought to call his name. Why? He was the righteous of God. But the whole point is this. Notice something. Jesus went into paradise. All right. So what happened? The point of Jesus dying. When he died, he went into paradise or some people call it uh, uh, Gehenna or what, not, not so much as the lake of fire. Let me just say par paradise. She old because that's the proper term that is actually used here. When Jesus died, okay, slowing it down because I'm so, so worried about time. Forget the time. Come back and watch the rest of it at your own convenience. When Jesus died, he went into paradise, okay, and the righteous souls who were in paradise, those people that I just named, Jesus liberated them. He took them out of paradise. This was because what? These people of the Old Testament times, all right, they died under the system of animal sacrifice. Say again, these people, Old Testament, died under the system of Old Testament sacrifice. How is sa old sacrifices performed in the Old Testament? Through blood of bulls, goats, and sheep. How? Through the blood of bulls, goats, and sheep. And what does the writer of Hebrews teach us? That the sacrifice of blood of goats, bulls, and sheep, this sacrifice could not, it was impossible for the sacrifice of blood, blood of the bull goes to take away sin. They could not. So what did the sacrifice of these blood of bulls and goats of the Old Testament do? It was a substitution. So therefore, what these sacrifices of animals under the Old Testament did was, and you'll see this in the very word of atonement, atonement. The word atonement in Hebrew deals with to cover, to cover. So the sacrifices of animals for Old Testament saints was a substitution. It, it, it merely covered their sins from God, considered this way, covered their sins from God's eyesight. But in the covering of their sins, 
it still did not remove their sins. Only the blood of the Messiah can remove sin. We see this in the teaching of Paul, as well as what I referred to in the book of Hebrews. Only the blood of the Messiah can remove sins. Okay. So therefore, when Jesus died on the cross, his blood was shed for the removals, not only of New Testament saints, men from the point of the time when Jesus died and all the way into the future, but his blood was also shed for the righteous people of the past, notably the Old Testament saints that were in Sheol paradise. And this paradise is nothing more than a compartment of Sheol separated from burning hell itself. Cause notice what Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, Abraham was in a place paradise separated by a gulf from those other people who were in the rich man burning fires of hell. So they were separate. They're in the same ideal place, but one paradise, one burning hell fire, Gehenna. Okay. This is what we mean. We say folk going to hell, the place where the rich man went, but on the other side of it was paradise where the righteous were. These people paradise, Jesus liberated. That's why Paul tells us, I believe it's in the book of Ephesians that when Jesus ascended into heaven, that is this invisible thing that took place. And I don't, okay, fine. When Jesus ascended into heaven, that's what we see in Acts chapter one on the ascension of Jesus into heaven. When Jesus ascended into heaven, there was an invisible group of people with him. Why? Paul says, Ephesians, I think chapter four, he, he took those who were held captive and he made them free. In other words, Old Testament saints who were, who could not go to heaven until the sins of them be paid by the blood of the Messiah. Jesus paid that. Now they are able to go and be with God, the father. He took those people. He cleared out paradise and took them to heaven to be with him in the presence of God. So I said all of those things with that extended narrative to simply say, if Jesus had bowed and worshiped Satan, it would have ruined the world. It would have ruined the saints, both old Testament and Satan would have reigned free as God of this world for all eternity. All right. So you understand that now let's finish the rest of the part. And so, so Jesus returns back to Satan with it is written as we've talked about that before. And I think that's in Deuteronomy six. Again, he quotes the words of God. You shall worship the Lord, your God and him only shall you serve. In other words, Jesus rejected idolatry as Moses said, the children of Israel should, uh, should reject idolatry. So Jesus succeeded in the testing of God. Notice this was the divine test in his humanity as a man. And Jesus therefore passed the test in him. I'm well pleased. He passed the test. Remember not as God, but as man. And so what happened? Let's finish this section. Then the devil left him 
for the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered him. So the devil left him and we'll find out later on in other gospel that the devil left him for a season. That means he'll come again <laughs> and we'll see him come again in the person in the person of Judas. But we ain't gonna get into all of that. The devil left him and behold, the angels came and began to minister to him. Let's go all the way back to the beginning of this temptation where I was telling you this. Jesus understood the purpose of his temptation is to be led in the wilderness to be tempted of Satan for that purpose. And as he was hungry for those days of his temptation, God, the father, it was the will of God that Jesus should be hungry for this time period. So therefore it is the will of God for Jesus to remain, remain hungry until God himself provides the manna, provides the food. And verse number 11 lets us see now that God has determined for the temptations to be over. Now God himself has sent the food. How? The angels themselves have come down. Notice you see a, some sort of fulfillment in when it says Psalm 91. He'll send the angels to protect you. And then the beginning of that temptation where the food angels came and ministered to him. Angels came and served Jesus. So therefore Jesus temptations, his hunger, the hunger that he had to go through came to an end when God himself sent the angels to feed him. And when the angels showed up, Jesus said, it's over. And therefore you can see him looking at Satan saying, now God is feeding me. And now the temptations are over. Satan, go, go. And in the sending Satan away, he teaches us once again in his success over temptations. How do we have success over temptations in our own lives? It's not by treading on the devil. Don't ever do that. Or it's not by stumping on the head of the devil. That is the most foolish thing I've ever heard in my life. Learn what Jude said that even those, even Michael, the archangel had respect unto Satan and he didn't stump on the head of the devil, but he said this situation is in the hand of God. Satan, not me, the Lord rebuke you. So it's not about you, it's not about your power, but it's in the word of God. To resist Satan successfully, you resist Satan in the word of God. But how can you resist Satan by the word of God if you don't know the word of God? So the first thing we need to do is learn the word of God in truth, in context, how God properly gives it and how we can principally apply, rightfully apply God's word, learn God's word, and therefore we can resist all of Satan's temptation only with, by the example of Jesus, quoting what? The word of God. Okay, saints, I must have been stone crazy to think that I could complete chapter four. <laughs> But anyway, we're going to simply stop with that part of Matthew and we'll come back in Matthew again to deal with the rest of Matthew chapter four with the calling of Jesus' first 
disciples. And we'll see the connection with that in Jesus being empowered by the spirit and Jesus is after he deals with, he goes after the, the temptations in the wilderness. All of these things directly connect with the temptations of Jesus. But nevertheless, just join me again as we finish chapter four. See you then. Producing these videos take a lot of time and they take resources too, guys. All the, the computers, the cameras, the blah, 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 blah. They take resources. So if God touches your mind and your heart, bless this ministry. If it helps you, if these teachings help you, bless the ministry, send a donation, or even become a monthly partner with me so that I can continue to do these things. I don't do it. I don't do it to make money, God forbid, but I do it that the ministry may be supported and that I might continuously with joy, because it does give my heart joy, to continuously bring these lessons to you for your benefit, for your spiritual enrichment. Okay? So help me out.